Well, here we are, approaching the end of March, which means that once again we will soon be facing the political season in the United States and all that that implies. Hi, I'm Steve Shepard, the host of the Natural Curiosity Project, the place for stories that matter. I don't know about you, but I would rather avoid the debacle that we faced last time when social media pummeled us with disinformation from every direction, making it virtually impossible to separate the wheat of truth from the chaff of falsehood. So I've been digging around, looking for tools to help me clearly separate the two, and I've run across some things that I want to share with you, not just because they're interesting, but because they might be useful in the months ahead, if for no other purpose than to reduce anxiety. Forewarned is forearmed, as they say. If you've had at least one cup of coffee or tea or chai or whatever you drink to kick off the day, you might want to ask, why should I trust this guy about a topic that's this important? And that would be a valid question. So let me tell you right up front how I researched this episode so that you could go about doing your own homework. First, I went to a handful of legitimately trustworthy sources, not individual news outlets, which can and often do lean left or right, but rather the closest thing to standards bodies that exist for the news outlets, the American Press Institute, Columbia School of Journalism, the publisher and editor of a local newspaper, and a friend of mine who's a professor of media studies. Now, none of these people or organizations have an axe to grind. They're simply interested in protecting the sanctity of journalism and its responsibility to identify and expose the truth as outlined in the American Constitution. I asked them all the same question. Regardless of a person's political inclinations, how can somebody legitimately verify the validity of a report or a study or an apparent fact to help them ferret out the truth in things so that they can make an informed decision by being an informed individual? Well, the first place I went was the American Press Institute, which serves as a collector and repository of journalism best practices with a really strong focus on accountability, journalistic integrity, and fact-checking. They offer a handful of questions that a person can ask that will help them zero in on the veracity of whatever a story is telling them, ensuring, if you will, that it passes the so-called sniff test. But before we go there, I want to introduce you to Lisa Loomis. Lisa is a friend of mine, and she's the executive editor of a local Vermont newspaper called The Valley Reporter. And she's also the president of the Vermont Press Association. So I asked her to join me on this episode for a very specific purpose, to tell us how to read a newspaper. Now, stop rolling your eyes and don't reach for the stop button. I'm willing to bet that there are things about newspapers that you don't know. For example, what does the op in op-ed mean? I bet you think it's an abbreviation for opinion, but nope, that's not what it stands for. What are column inches? What does above the fold really mean and why is it important? So even though physical newspapers are sadly disappearing and being replaced by digital ghosts of themselves, or worse, by thinly veiled or not so thinly veiled social media outlets posing as news agencies, it's still important to understand all the elements of a newspaper, a bunch of loosely related pieces all flying together in close formation. So I first asked Lisa, why is it important to have a free press with the powerful responsibility and obligation to question the authority of the agencies that would govern us? Because if we don't, who will? I mean, whose, whose job is it to shine the light of public scrutiny 
where it needs to be shown. Is it Joe Q public? I would argue that all media represents Joe Q public. We are, we are nothing more than an extension. We are the public. We are the people being governed. We are the people for whom the land use regulations are being written. We are the people whose money is being spent. Because if we don't, who will? That's really the point, isn't it? Before we go on, let me make another point that might make you squirm a little bit. Keep in mind that there are three powerful forces at work to make you think in a particular way and believe certain things. One of them is internal. The others are external. The internal one is confirmation bias, the tendency that humans have to read and believe only the sources that support what we already believe, making it hard for us to have our minds changed when occasionally they should be. I'm guilty of this, so I force myself to read points of view that differ from my own. It doesn't mean that I change horses in midstream, as they say, but it helps me understand other points of view. And to be honest, sometimes I do change my mind. The other forces, the external ones, are first the emergence of AI-driven technologies that can create very credible, very well-written content that is absolutely false, yet very compelling. ChatGPT is a good example. It's a breathtakingly capable technology, and I've used it extensively to see how far I can push it as a writing aid. But here's what I've learned. First, it's far from perfect, as good as it may look. Yeah, it can string words together quite well, but it has two problems. First, it doesn't cite sources when you ask it to write a piece about a topic that you're interested in, so that makes the content suspect. And, and this one is really important, quite often it just makes stuff up. That's right, on several occasions I've asked ChatGPT to write me a couple of paragraphs about a topic, and it did, quoting people, providing statistics, all the things that I wanted to see in the piece. But when I dug in, I discovered that the people cited didn't exist and the statistics were pure fiction. They were made up. And this has happened more than once. So beware of anything you read or hear that might have been AI generated. I'm not saying it's all bad, but be judicious. The other thing that works against us is the social media algorithm, a topic that I've researched deeply and extensively in my work as a tech industry analyst. These algorithms do precisely what they're designed to do. Analyze everything that we look at, buy, search for, comment on, read, and give a casual like to, and then bury us in ads and content that amplify or strengthen our likes and biases. This is dangerous because the practice puts us into intellectual and social silos, isolating us from differing ideas and differing perspectives, and just as important, people who think differently than we do. And by the way, on that topic, here's an interesting thing for you. Did you know that there's an organization in Denmark called the Human Library? And it's exactly what the name implies. You can check out a person who's different than you are and then sit down with them over a cup of coffee and have a conversation. It's a really great way to unjudge people. I mean, what a concept. I'm going to be covering this organization and its work in an upcoming episode. Finally, there's a whole industry out there that does nothing but create disinformation and fake news. Go look up Sandworm or Russia's Internet Research Agency, both of which have pumped out hundreds of millions of pieces of falsehood and disinformation, much of it distributed through social media. That's not new news, but it is a warning, so be thoughtful. I spoke with Rob Prince about this. 
Rob's a professor of media studies at the University of Alaska at Fairbanks and the host of the podcast Dark Winter Nights. I asked what concerns him about the media world today, given the avalanche of both legitimate and questionable content that we now have to contend with. One of the first things that comes to mind is how do we operate in a world where you can plausibly deny anything? We have you on tape doing and saying a certain thing, and you can say, no, I did not do and say that thing. So accountability in the future is something that concerns me a lot. And truth, what what actually happened? How do we how do we know that in the future? You know, as someone who's taught media literacy for a decade and a half, I'm worried about how mass media can affect me and it can still dupe me. I've been duped by, you know, what we call deep fake videos already. Not not for long, but there's been videos I've seen. I'm like, oh my gosh, I can't believe that happened. And then you find out like, oh, it's totally faked, but it looked really real. And it's only going to get way, way worse as deep fakes and uh, social media evolve and mass media producers find new and interesting ways to get us to behave in the way that they want to. It's just absolutely absolutely critical. And I, but I, I want to make sure I don't come across as a hater of mass media. Obviously, I love mass media. Mass media and technology, I think, as a whole have been just absolutely wonderful for humanity. But it's like a car, you know. Cars have been great for humanity, but you have to understand how they work. So let me go back to Lisa Loomis again. I asked her to take us on a tour of her newspaper, starting with page one. As I said, Lisa publishes the Valley Reporter, which is a local newspaper that serves the Mad River Valley in northern Vermont. So this is page one, and the top of the, where it says the Valley Reporter, that's our, our logo, that's called our masthead. And then you can see the volume number. This is our 52nd year of production, and this is the 41st issue of this year, the date. And then right about below the bottom of that picture is where the newspaper is folded and is on newsstands folded in half. To achieve above the fold status is good. That means you're your your priority. That's a good thing. Next, we made our way to the editorial page. This is the editorial page, and you'll see it's marked by the word opinion on top. This is where we run editorials, letters to the editor. We have a regular columnist. Often here, when we don't have pictures, we have what's called Valley Viewpoint, which are man of the street interviews. We go out and solicit answers to questions about local politics, about local happenings from people, and it runs right here. On this page, it's called the op-ed, as in opposite of the editorial, and this is where opinions go. You caught that, right? The op in op-ed means opposite, not opinion, even though it might be an opinion? An editorial is a very specific thing that is written by um, editorial staff of a newspaper that represents the opinion of the newspaper on any given issue. These are important places for the community to talk to itself about local issues. I can't emphasize how important these pages are for the community and for newspapers. The next thing Lisa described was the masthead, which is basically the who's who of a newspaper. At the bottom of this page, it's called the masthead. And this will tell you who's who at a newspaper. But it's also important to know what each of the people listed on the masthead actually do. The editor creates the editorial content, the words of the paper, and directs the focus of editorial coverage and assigns the stories and edits the stories 
and the publisher is more associated with the business end of things, although still engaged in the community and engaged politically in the community. Both the editor, in our case, the publisher and the editor are both engaged politically and in the community in the, to the same degree. And then a reporter is a staff writer, is an editor, is some, you know, the people who contribute, who are assigned stories to write. Okay. Hopefully you now have a better understanding of the geography or the terrain of a newspaper, regardless of whether it's a physical paper or a digital download, and a better awareness of what all those people and pieces actually do. So now I'm going to go back to some of the recommendations from the American Press Institute. Let's assume that you're about to read a news story about a topic that's important to you. But at the same time, you want to make sure that the information in the piece is actually true. After all, you're going to base your own thinking and perhaps decision-making on what you're about to read. So the API suggests asking a handful of questions when you're wondering about the validity of a fact or a story. The first question is pretty straightforward. What kind of information am I reading? In other words, where did it come from? Is it a news piece? Is it an opinion or an op-ed piece? This is an important place to start because if the piece is an opinion, that doesn't make it wrong. But on balance, it's less important than a hardcore, well-researched and vetted news piece from a reliable and legitimate news agency. Remember, an opinion is what a person thinks they know, not necessarily what they actually know. It's interesting to me that when I flip through the news networks on television, more often than not, what I see on the screen are two or more talking heads yammering at each other. That's not news. That's opinion. In fact, it's a collection of opinions, each one of them trying to out-opinion the other. It's interesting. It's sometimes entertaining. But it's not news. This kind of programming takes up so much time during the broadcast day that it occurred to me that CNN the cable news network should change its name to the cable opinion network, but then they wouldn't be CNN, they'd be CON or CON, and that wouldn't fly. So here's another thing to watch out for. I've spent the bulk of my career in the telecom and IT world, an industry that has more publications about telecom and IT than it has telecom and IT products to sell. I don't read any of them, not one. And it's not because they're bad. It's because they're biased. And in my business, I can't afford to sell or base my, my recommendations on biased information. Pick an article in one of your own industry magazines and look closely at the author's bio. More often than not, they work for one of the equipment or software vendors, which means that the likelihood that their piece is unbiased is questionable. It doesn't mean that the article can't provide value or that the author's knowledge or opinions are flawed. It simply means that when I read those pieces, I read them with a jaundiced eye, and I'd rather not have to do that. So be careful. Finally, if you tug on the string that leads from the article back to its publisher, what do you discover about how the organization and by default its content creators get paid? That can tell you a lot about the validity, the slant, the bias, or the very truthfulness of the piece. Now, the next thing to look at is the source material that the author of the piece used to develop it. Are they quoting actual verifiable people, for example? Remember my adventure with ChatGPT. Did they rely on legitimate research reports that can be independently verified? If they used first-hand knowledge, how did they develop it? Sometimes a source is anonymous, and that's fine as long as the information is being presented by a legitimate, trustworthy journalist for whom integrity matters. Here's Rob Prince again. 
The best practice, in my opinion, for engaging with the news is to get your sample news from a variety of highly reliable news sources. By that, I mean maybe you have five, six, or more news agencies that you understand to be reliable, and you kind of pop between the different ones. Next on the list from the American Press Institute is evidence. If the story cites a fact, can it be proven to be real? Trust but verify is a critical practice in journalism because true journalism is about truth. My friend Gary Kessler is an international authority on cybersecurity. He's been on this program a number of times talking about cyber, especially as it relates to the maritime industry. Years ago, he introduced me to a book called How to Lie with Statistics, written by Daryl Huff the year I was born. Unlike Gary, I'm not a mathematician. Math gives me hives, but interestingly, neither was Huff. He was a journalist, and he wrote the book as a not-so-mild warning to both other journalists and the public about the misuse of statistics and how to guard against being led astray by them. In fact, the book opens with a set of quotes. Benjamin Disraeli says, There are three kinds of lies. Lies, damn lies, and statistics. Artemis Ward says, It ain't so much the things we don't know that get us in trouble. It's the things we know that ain't so. Trust, but verify. Look for indications or techniques you can use to verify the facts to make sure they're actually facts. And at the same time, make sure that the author's conclusion makes sense and that the facts presented support the conclusion. Because as we learned in the chaos and mania leading up to the last election, that isn't always the case. The next question to ask as you read, watch, or listen to a piece is this. Do I have all the information I need to make sense of this story, to put it into a context that's meaningful to me? Does the story make a leap somewhere that isn't supported by facts or that disrupts the flow enough to make me question the conclusion? Sometimes that happens because of sloppy or rushed copywriting. But sometimes it happens because there really is a gap and the author or the presenter is hoping you won't notice. So don't fall for that trap. If you sense a gap, there's probably a gap. Dig in. And by the way, I know that this takes a lot of work, but trust me, it's worth it. I feel like I can basically trust the major news networks, ABC, NBC, CNN. Public television has an incredible reputation for being reliable. The BBC has a, a great reputation as well. So by understanding these major news sources, a lot of people are watching what they do and a lot of people go to them because they are reliable. I go through and and I, I spend my morning kind of scrolling through to see what's the latest and then getting different takes on it because it's interesting. Every once in a while, there'll be a big story and one news outlet will have a, a very different take from the other that will shine some light on it and help me better understand. I kind of fact check this by talking to other friends of mine who follow the news. And what I've found is that among the friends I, I talk to, this method has never left me really in the dark. If there is something going on, I know about it already. There really isn't much that, that people can, can bring up in terms of major international news that I, I'm not familiar with. And so for me, that was a, a test to prove like this system works for me. And then once I'm done with that, I'll usually go check in. For me, you know, the New York Times is the most highly respected paper in the world. 
And so I, I pay for subscription to them so because I want to support their work. And so I'll go and check in there and see, is there anything I missed? They have a take on something that I, that I didn't catch. And then I also have a BBC app. I go check on that once in a while too, just for maybe a little bit more of like an international look or a, a look at things from the UK perspective. One last thing before I go. As I was doing some research a few days ago for this program, I ran across a book by two gentlemen named Carl Bergstrom and Jevin West. The book is called Calling Bullshit, The Art of Skepticism in a Data-Driven World. I instantly ordered it, and it's fantastic. I strongly urge you to read it. Not only that, but I discovered that the authors are professors in the Department of Biology at the University of Washington, and they teach a course by the same name, the syllabus of which makes me want to fly out to Seattle and enroll. Here's what the authors have to say about the topic. What do we mean exactly by bullshit and calling bullshit? As a first approximation, bullshit involves language, statistical figures, data graphics, and other forms of presentation intended to persuade by impressing and overwhelming a reader or listener with a blatant disregard for truth and logical coherence. Calling bullshit is a performative utterance a speech act in which one publicly repudiates something objectionable. The scope of targets is broader than bullshit alone. You can call bullshit on bullshit, but you can also call bullshit on lies, treachery, trickery, or injustice. In this course, we will teach you how to spot the former and effectively perform the latter. Seems to me that this course ought to be required for every human being with the ability to breathe. I leave you with this final thought from Rob Prince. People don't understand that journalism is another branch of our government. It's not like we don't elect these people. It's not like they have their own special building. But the First Amendment specifically protects journalism because they understood that they're the only ones who are going to keep government in check. The government's not reporting on itself, really. When's the last time, you know, you saw a press release from the White House that was about something dumb the White House has done, you know? That's the job of the Washington Post and the New York Times. Well, that brings us to the end of another far-ranging program, folks. I hope it's been interesting and hopefully useful. During COVID and the last chaotic political season, I did an episode about the importance of inoculating ourselves with knowledge as a way to fight the infection of untruths and outright lies that were swirling around us. Hopefully this next time, we'll have some knowledge antibodies built up. We'll see. I'm Steve Shepard, the host of The Natural Curiosity Project, and I just want to take a few additional seconds to thank you for the gift of your time. I started this program because I believe that curiosity leads to discovery, discovery leads to knowledge, knowledge leads to insight, and insight leads to understanding. If you've been a listener for a while, you know that the only thing that ties the episodes together is that each one covers a story that deserves to be told, and that each story is something that you should be curious about. I hope you enjoyed the journey we covered in this program, and if you did, Please take a couple of minutes to write a brief review wherever you get your podcasts. I cannot tell you how much it means and how valuable it is to have those reviews. From my heart, thank you. And I'll see you in the next episode.